World-class cereal eating is a dance of fine compromises. The giant heaping bowl of sodden cereal awash in milk is the mark of the novice. Ideally, one wants the bone-dry cereal nuggets and the cryogenic milk to enter the mouth with minimal contact and for the entire reaction between them to take place in the mouth. I'm just a poor wayfaring stranger Traveling through Hi, everyone. This is Ivy Tara Blair, coming to you from still shelter-in-place Missoula, Montana, with Ivy Tara Blair Unplugged Quarantine Edition, in which I am reading in my unplugged fashion, meaning off-the-cuff, unedited, well, fairly unedited and quite unrehearsed, bits from books that will make you smile or um, help you feel understood one way or the other. Today's reading is from Neil Stephenson's Cryptonomicon, and thus, most likely, column A. This is a chapter that has always made me absolutely crack up, because everybody's got a special way that they eat a thing, right? Like, everybody eats a Reese's peanut butter cup a certain way, and it's not the way anybody else eats it. And you can have actual arguments that lead to physical violence if you start comparing and contrasting. Eat one bite, eat half a bite, eat the little chocolate all the way around the edges before you eat the center bit. No. So this chapter is a chapter about a man and how he eats the most dangerous cereal of all time. The book is Cryptonomicon. The author is Neil Stephenson, and this is a chapter titled Crunch. The condemned man showers, shaves, puts on most of a suit, and realizes that he is ahead of schedule. He turns on the television, gets a San Miguel out of the fridge to steady his nerves, and then goes to the closet to get the stuff of his last meal. The apartment only has one closet, and when its door is open, it appears to have been bricked shut, cask of Amontillado style, with very large, flat, red oblongs, each imprinted with the image of a venerable and yet oddly cheerful and yet somehow kind of hauntingly sad naval officer. The whole pallet load was shipped here several weeks ago by Avi in an attempt to lift Randy's spirits— for all Randy knows, more are still sitting on a manila dockside ringed with armed guards and dictionary-sized rat traps straining against their triggers, each baited with a single golden nugget. Randy selects one of the bricks from this wall, creating a gap in the formation, but there is another identical one right behind it, another picture of that same naval officer. They seem to be marching from his closet in a peppy phalanx. Part of this complete balanced breakfast, Randy says. Then he slams the door on them and walks with measured, forcibly calm step to the living room, where he does most of his dining, usually while facing his 36-inch television. He sets up his San Miguel, an empty bowl, an exceptionally large soup spoon, so large that most European cultures would identify it as a serving spoon and most Asian ones as a horticultural implement. 
He obtains a stack of paper napkins, not the brown recycled ones that can't be moistened even by immersion in water, but the flagrantly environmentally unsound type. Brilliant white and cotton fluffy and desperately hygroscopic. He goes to the kitchen, opens the fridge, reaches deep into the back, and finds an unopened box bag pod unit of UHT milk. UHT milk need not technically be refrigerated, but it is pivotal in what is to follow, that the milk be only a few micro degrees above the point of freezing. The fridge in Randy's apartment has louvers in the back where the cold air is blown in straight from the Freon coils. Randy always stores his milk pods directly in front of those louvers, not too close or else the pods will block the flow of the air and not too far away either. The cold air becomes visible as it rushes in and condenses moisture, so it is a simple matter to sit there with the fridge door open and observe its flow characteristics. Like an engineer testing an experimental minivan in a River Rouge wind tunnel. What Randy would like to see, ideally, is the whole milk pod enveloped in an even, jacket-like flow to produce better heat exchange through the multi-layered plastic and foil skin of the milk pod. He would like the milk to be so cold that when he reaches in and grabs it, he feels the flexible, squishy pod stiffen between his fingers as ice crystals spring into existence, summoned out of nowhere simply by the disturbance of being squished. Today, the milk is almost, but not quite, that cold. Randy goes into his living room with it. He has to wrap it in a towel because it is so cold it hurts his fingers. He launches a videotape and then sits down. All is in readiness. This is one of a series of videotapes that are shot in an empty basketball gym with a polished maple floor and a howling remorseless ventilation system. They depict a young man and a young woman, both attractive, svelte, and dressed something like marquee players in the ice capades, performing simple ballroom dance steps to the accompaniment of strangled music from a ghetto blaster set up on the free throw line. It is miserably clear that the video has been shot by a third conspirator who is burdened with a consumer-grade camcorder and reeling from some kind of inner ear disease that he or she would like to share with others. The dancers stomp through the most simple steps with autistic determination. The camera operator begins in each case with a two-shot, then, like a desperado tormenting a milksop, aims his weapon at their feet and makes them dance, dance, dance. At one point, the pager hooked to the man's elastic waistband goes off and a scene has to be cut short. No wonder. He is one of the most sought-after ballroom dance instructors in Manila. His partner would be too if more men in this city were interested in learning to dance. As it is, she must scrape by earning maybe a tenth of what the male instructor pulls down, giving lessons to a small number of adult or henpecked stumblebums like Randy Waterhouse. Randy takes the red box and holds it securely between his knees with the handy stay-closed tab pointing away from him. Using both hands in unison, he carefully works his fingertips underneath the flap, trying to achieve equal pressure on each side, paying special attention to places where too much glue was laid down by the gluing machine. For a few long, tense moments, nothing at all happens, and an ignorant or impatient observer might suppose that Randy is getting nowhere. 
but then the entire flap pops open in an instant as the entire glue front gives way. Randy hates it when the box top gets bent or, worst of all possible words, torn. The lower flap is merely tacked down with a couple of small glue spots, and Randy pulls it back to reveal a translucent inflated sack. The halogen downlight recessed in the ceiling shines through the cloudy material of the sack to reveal gold everywhere the glint of gold. Randy rotates the box 90 degrees and holds it between his knees so its long axis is pointed at the television set, then grips the top of the sack and carefully parts its heat-sealed seam, which purrs as it gives way. Removal of the somewhat milky plastic barrier causes the individual nuggets of Captain Crunch to resolve under the halogen light with a kind of preternatural crispiness and definition that makes the roof of Randy's mouth glow and throb in trepidation. On the TV, the dancing instructors have finished demonstrating the basic steps. It is almost painful to watch them doing the compulsories because when they do, they must willfully forget everything they know about advanced ballroom dancing and dance like persons who have suffered strokes or major brain injuries that have wiped out not only the parts of their brain responsible for fine motor skills, but also blown every panel in the aesthetic discretion module. They must. In other words, dance the way their beginning pupils like Randy dance. The gold nuggets of Cap'n Crunch pelt the bottom of the bowl with a sound like glass rods being snapped in half. Tiny fragments spall away from their corners and ricochet around on the white porcelain surface. World-class cereal eating is a dance of fine compromises. The giant heaping bowl of sodden cereal awash in milk is the mark of the novice. Ideally, one wants the bone-dry cereal nuggets and the cryogenic milk to enter the mouth with minimal contact and for the entire reaction between them to take place in the mouth. Randy has worked out a set of mental blueprints for a special cereal-eating spoon that will have a tube running down the handle and a little pump for the milk so that you can spoon dry cereal up out of a bowl, hit a button with your thumb, and squirt milk into the bowl of the spoon, even as you are introducing it into your mouth. The next best thing is to work in small increments, putting only a small amount of Cap'n Crunch into your bowl at a time and eating it up before it becomes a pit of loathsome slime, which, in the case of Cap'n Crunch, takes about 30 seconds. At this point in the videotape, he always wonders if he's inadvertently set his beard down on the fast-forward button or something because the dancers go straight from their vicious, randy parody into something that obviously qualifies as advanced dancing. Randy knows that the steps they are doing are nominally the same as the basic steps demonstrated earlier, but he's damned if he can tell which is which once they go into their creative mode. There is no recognizable transition, and that is what pisses Randy off and has always pissed him off about dancing lessons. Any moron can learn to trudge through the basic steps. That takes hell of half an hour. But when that half hour is over, dancing instructors always expect you'll take flight and go through one of those miraculous time-lapse transitions that happen only in Broadway musicals and begin dancing brilliantly. Randy supposes that people who are lousy at math feel the same way. The instructor writes a few simple equations on the board, and ten minutes later he's deriving the speed of light in a vacuum. He pours the milk with one hand, while jamming the spoon in 
with the other, not wanting to waste a single moment of the magical golden time when the cold milk and Captain Crunch are together but have not yet begun to pollute each other's essential natures, two platonic ideals separated by a boundary a molecule wide. Where the flume of milk splashes over the spoon handle, the polished stainless steel fogs with condensation, Randy, of course, uses whole milk because otherwise why bother? Anything less is indistinguishable from water. And besides, he thinks that the fat in the whole milk acts as some kind of a buffer that retards the dissolution into slime process. The giant spoon goes into his mouth before the milk in the bowl has even had time to seek its own level. A few drips come off the bottom and are caught by his freshly washed goatee, still trying to find the right balance between beardedness and vulnerability. Randy has allowed one of those to grow. Randy sets the milk pod down, grabs a fluffy napkin, lifts it to his chin, and uses a pinching motion to sort of lift the drops of milk from his whiskers rather than smashing and smearing them down into the beard. Meanwhile, all his concentration is fixed on the interior of his mouth— which naturally he cannot see, but which he can imagine in three dimensions as if zooming through it in a virtual reality display. Here is where a novice would lose his control and simply chomp down. A few of the nuggets would explode between his molars, but then his jaw would snap shut and drive all of the unshattered nuggets straight up into his palate where their armor of razor-sharp dextrose crystals would inflict massive collateral damage, turning the rest of the meal into a sort of pain-haze death march and rendering him Novocaine mute for three days. But Randy has, over time, worked out a really fiendish Cap'n Crunch eating strategy that revolves around playing the nuggets' most deadly features against each other. The nuggets themselves are pillow-shaped and vaguely striated to echo piratical treasure chests. Now, with a flake type of cereal, Randy's strategy would never work. But then, Captain Crunch in flake form would be suicidal madness. It would last about as long when immersed in milk as snowflakes sifting down into a deep fryer. No. The cereal engineers at General Mills had to find a shape that would minimize surface area and, as some sort of compromise between the sphere that is dictated by Euclidean geometry and whatever sunken treasure-related shapes that the cereal statisticians were probably clamoring for, they came up with this hard-to-pin-down striated pillow formation. The important thing, for Randy's purposes, is that the individual pieces of Cap'n Crunch are, to a very rough approximation, shaped kind of like molars. The strategy, then, is to make the Cap'n Crunch to itself by grinding the nuggets together in the center of the oral cavity like stones in a lapidary tumbler, like advanced ballroom dancing, verbal explanations, or for that matter, watching videotapes, only goes so far, and then your body just has to learn the moves. <laughs> oh my goodness, I love Cryptonomicon. I love Snow Crash, but I really, my heart is given over to Cryptonomicon. There is not a single chapter of this book that I do not love, and I will probably be reading from it again. However, not today, and there will be no commentary today, as I have spent the last week wrestling with new audio software, and I'm, I'm, I have no words left. <laughs> I can't even talk about how frustrated I am. My Twitter posts about how frustrated I am do not have complete sentences in them. It's good. It's good. It's good so far. I'm literally going to have to write 
actual emails to actual humans who know what they're doing because I'm clearly missing something. But the most important features are kind of making sense. So this is Ivy Tara Blair. I have been reading from Neil Stephenson's Cryptonomicon. And I wish you all the very best. And please, for now, stay home. I'm just